Good morning. How is everybody doing? You guys okay? I'm doing all right, too. That was great music. Thank you, guys. Amazing. I got to hear it before and during. That was awesome. I was uh, thankful that I got here a little bit early because I took a walk around the back. And yeah, yeah. And amazing. For the last three weeks, I have had court right, wow, that's, I've had court right on my mind because I've been surrounded by vegetables. <laughs> yeah. I, we, little kids. We have had three summer students working on simply cutting vegetables for about three weeks. Honestly, it's been unbelievable. Rick mentioned this morning, Rich, Richard mentioned uh, that's really the feeding of the 5,000. And it really is. It's a miracle. And I'm so thankful for that and thankful for all that you guys do. I hope you don't mind. I'm going to take off my shoes. My feet are just hot. I don't, maybe this is holy too, but my feet are hot. Um, this this um, stand is sinking on me. Oh, thank you. Awesome. There it goes. Awesome. So just before I, I kind of begin the talk, I wanted you to know that uh, I always speak out of a place of um, learning. So whenever I talk, some people think, well, maybe Kevin has this together. That is not true. In fact, I've often wondered if God called me to be a pastor and a speaker because I need more work than the rest of you. Because I have to be, it's part of my job to be immersed in thinking and, and studying and meditating. And so I, I do not come to you to tell you, talk to you about anything today that I have mastered, but something that I'm on my knees about and trying to figure out. And I hope that it blesses you. It, it's blessed me preparing for it. Um, and I am so excited that you guys are talking through the parables. You are talking through the parables, right? I'm in the right church? No. <laughs> I am so excited because I think the parables are such an interesting way of teaching. The thing is about parables, though, they don't lead us to black and white answers. They lead us to questions. They call us to stop, to meditate, to think, to dream, and to view things from a different angle. And the Bible tells us, Matthew 13 says, Jesus always taught in parables. And he did this to reveal the things hidden since the beginning of creation. Jesus reveals things hidden since the beginning of creation. That's mystery. That's what he's revealing. And I don't think of mystery as something that can't be known. I think of mystery as something that we can know deeper and deeper and deeper and fall deeper into mystery. You know, kind of like an onion, many layers. Well, maybe more like a parfait, because everybody likes parfait, right? A little nod to my Shrek friends. So our scripture today comes from Matthew 20. We're looking at the parable of the workers in the field. Matthew 20, 1 to 16. Some people call it the parable of the landowner, but today we'll call it the, the workers in the field. For the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out early one morning to hire workers for his vineyard. He agreed to pay the normal daily wage and sent them out to work. 
At nine o'clock in the morning, he was passing through the marketplace and saw some people standing around doing nothing. So he hired them, telling them he would pay whatever was right at the end of the day. So they went to work in the vineyard. At noon and again at three o'clock, he did the same thing. At five o'clock that afternoon, he was in town again and saw some more people standing around. He asked them, why haven't you been working today? They replied, because no one hired us. The landowner told them, then go and join the others in my vineyard. That evening, he told the foreman to call the workers in, pay them, beginning with the last workers first. When those hired at five o'clock were paid, each received a full day's wage. When those hired first came to get their pay, they assumed they would receive more, but they too were paid a day's wage. When they received their pay, they protested to the owner. These people worked only one hour, and yet you've paid them as just as much as us, who worked all day in the scorching heat. He answered one of them, friend, I haven't been unfair. Didn't you agree to work all day for the usual wage? Take your money and go. I wanted to pay this last worker the same as you. Is it against the law for me to do what I want with my money? Should you be jealous because I am kind to others? So those who are last now will be first then, and those who are first will be last. What a strange story. And the traditional interpretation of this story is beautiful. It speaks about the grace of God, right? And that is something that all of us are in great need of. It says that the landowner is God, and that God continues to call us through all stages of our lives, in the morning, at noon, at 3 o'clock, and at 5 o'clock. And no matter when we respond to that call, we're given salvation, we're given a reward. And we find great comfort in that, don't we? Knowing that. That it's never too late in the day to begin our journey, to begin following Jesus. There's great security and great beauty in that thought process. And it wasn't until I started the reading this parable from a different lens that I realized that there is other truth here. And that God does speak to us wherever we're at even when we're not where we should be. And when I read the story, most often I identify with the landowner. See, I own a house. Well, the bank owns most of it. I own like this much, and the bank owns this much. But this parable was given to people, was told to people who would never have been able to identify with a landowner. They would have only been able to identify with the workers. They would have only been able to identify with those who were paid a very small amount for the day. The amount that was paid to them was actually not enough to feed more than the person working. So if they had a family, they wouldn't be able to feed them. Hmm. So as I've thought about that, I wondered if this parable isn't meant to give comfort to those who identify with the landowner, myself but comfort to those who are the workers, to those who are economically and socially pushed down, the workers in the field. And what it should do, at least it's doing for me, is it's challenging me as one who can identify with the landowner. It convicts me. Have you ever thought about that? I think the wealthy landowner is God. And I own a house, and so... I see myself as that landowner, and so the attitudes of the landowner 
are like mine. Deep down, I want God to act like me. Then I don't have to change. And if God acts like me, then I don't have to change my attitudes or actions on money, on possessions, on how I treat people. And yet I know that those things are the very things in my life that are in need of repentance, that are in need of a change in direction. And I don't know about you, but I tend to read all scripture kind of in this light, right? I read it in a way that justifies the way I'm already acting. Not in the way that God is pushing me to act. And in doing so, I don't change any of my attitudes and I don't change my actions and I don't follow Jesus. But the parables and mystery should lead us to this place, this place of question. Am I reading this with a willingness to change? Or am I studying just to justify those actions and attitudes that don't last, that aren't eternal, that don't, per, that don't point to Jesus, that simply affirm my own position and my privilege? Now, the beautiful thing about the traditional interpretation is it does shake our sense of fairness. It's been one of my biggest peeves during COVID is that people claiming rights. It's not how the one we follow um, did things. But who of us wants to be the person who is working from early in the morning till evening and get paid the same as the guy that came in when it was cooled off. So I want to challenge you today to look at this parable differently with me. From eyes that are at the bottom looking up instead of from the top looking down. Or as the passage says at the end, for those who are first shall be last and those who are last shall be first. So Jesus is talking to a group of people who are extremely poor. They would have barely had enough to eat each day. So they lived like food to mouth daily. And they never had anything to cover emergencies. You know, I remember a time when I was younger, my kids were young, and we had enough to live, but then my car broke down. You know when that happens? And it was a big emergency. But I owned a car, right? From this vantage point, the mumbling or the murmuring of the one or the workers, or the one worker, depends on how you read it, they're just simply standing up for their family. They're looking for fair pay. Oh, I know, I know that the worker agreed. They agreed for the pay, which again was not enough to feed them and their family, just enough for them. But did they have a choice, right? There was no other work. It says in the later day, there was no work for us. Could the landowner have simply been taking advantage of those who were in a desperate situation? So, of course, by now, I'm interpreting this, the landowner is not God, because I don't think that is God, okay? <laughs> in the translation I read this morning, it says, he agreed to pay the normal daily wage. But the Greek actually says, he agreed to pay them a denarius, which is a little bit. Most of these listeners would have been in the same situation as those workers. How would they have heard this? 
they would have been the last to be hired, the ones standing in the square waiting, hoping someone might come along and pick them up, send them to their field so they could earn something. They would have been the last to be hired, and they would have had to take whatever they could get. Fair pay or not, they would have agreed to the deal. Have you ever been desperate enough to accept a raw deal? Doesn't feel very good. Imagine those people standing there. They were hoping someone might come along, hoping someone might hire them. And that was common practice until recently, actually. I think employment agencies kind of pushed this out. In his book, The Politics of Jesus, Aubrey Hendricks describes a childhood experience that really shows this. He says, when I was nine years old, my father, a self-employed brick mason, began taking me to work with him during my school vacations, not only in the summer, but in the spring and winter, too. Our workdays always began with a stop at a particular corner in a poor section of town. Although we never arrived later than 6.15, 50 or more men in dusty work clothes would already be there, greasy brown bag lunches in hand. My father would call out, as would the drivers of other trucks easing up to the curb, and an eager worker or two scrambled up under our truck bed to huddle against the morning chill as we sped down the highway. My father usually told the workers the wage he was willing to pay before we drove off, though sometimes he forgot until we'd arrived at the work site, which might be an hour and a half away. Yet I don't remember any worker ever asking what he'd be paid for at the day's end. Each apparently trusted or at least hoped to be treated fairly. This is exactly how the, work, the listeners would have heard this story. A rich man comes to offer work and you know that you really aren't worth anything because nobody else will hire you. So anything will do. It doesn't matter if it's enough. And even though you agree, it's, not because with, it's only because without it you would starve. It is an agreement. It's desperation. Does this resonate with you? Or are you offended? I was offended at my own attitudes. It's important for us to look at this passage, though, in context, right? Not only in the context of the time or the people that are hearing it, but also where it's placed in Matthew, right? Right before Jesus reads this parable, he has an encounter with a rich, young man who asks a great question. In Matthew 19, he says, Teacher, what, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? Why ask me about what is good, Jesus replied. There is only one who is good. But to answer your question, if you want to receive eternal life, keep the commandments. Which ones, the man asked. And Jesus replied, you must not murder. You must not commit adultery. You must not steal. You must not testify falsely. Honor your father and mother. Love your neighbor as yourself. I've obeyed all these commandments, the young man replied. What else must I do? Jesus told him, if you want to be perfect, go and sell all your possessions and give the money to the poor. And you will have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. But when the young man heard this, he went away sad, for he had many possessions. Then Jesus said to his disciples, I tell you the truth, it is very hard for a rich person to enter the kingdom of heaven. I'll say it again, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were astounded. Then who in the world can be saved, they asked. And Jesus looked at them intently and said, humanly speaking, it is impossible, but with God, everything is possible. Then Peter said to him, we've given up everything to follow you. What will we get 
Jesus replied, I assure you that when the world is made new and the Son of Man sits upon his glorious throne, you who have been my followers will also sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. And everyone who has given up house or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or property for my sake will receive a hundred times as much in return and will inherit eternal life. But many who are the greatest now will be least important then. And those who seem to be least important now will be the greatest then. I find it interesting that a young man comes to ask the same question that Jesus answers in the parable. What must I do to enter the kingdom of God? And then Jesus says, the kingdom of God is like. Right here, Jesus says, it's harder for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. What a picture. He tells the rich man to sell all his possessions and to give the money away. Then he launches into this story about a rich man, a rich man who holds on to his possession and takes, away, takes advantage of the poor. And I think this connection is super important. I love Peter's reaction here. He says, what will we get? Isn't that always our response? Where are we going to get out of the deal? But Peter says the same thing that the workers in the field say, right? He, watched, he watches the rich young man with all his rewards, just like the workers in the field watch the last person receiving the same, or the landowner who has so much around them. But unlike the landowner, Jesus tells Peter that they would receive more than they had ever lost. The disciples are, are also in the same position as these workers in the field, right? They have nothing. And no matter what their meager pay looks like, it is so much more than what they have given up. Possessions, property, family. Even though it looks like their pay at the end of the day, and we're talking about the disciples now, their pay probably wasn't enough to survive on. Jesus wasn't paying huge amounts of money. He gave them free lunches, though. <laughs> Let alone thrive on, right? Like what we would think of thrive, have money in the bank and RSPs. But Jesus assures them that they will receive so much more. Things that are of lasting value. Things that are eternal. And then Jesus ends this interaction with this rich young man with the phrase, but many who are the greatest now will be the least important then. And those who seem least important now will be the greatest then. He ends the parable of the workers in the vineyard with a similar phrase, doesn't he? So those who are last now will be first then, and those who are first will be last. It seems to me that this whole section is teaching that encourages those who are at the bottom of wealth and power, but challenges those who are at the top of wealth and power about their attitudes of those very things, of wealth and power and possessions, especially in how it relates to the poor and the vulnerable. Looking back, the rich young ruler approaches Jesus. We see that inner struggle because I see it in myself, right? I want to follow Jesus, but I have to give up my possessions. He can't do it. He walks away. I know that there's many things that I need to give up to follow Jesus well. It seems like a huge ongoing list. And for me, it's not necessarily possessions, but my attitudes, my judgments, those things, those attitudes that I possess, or really they begin to possess me. 
find it funny, that word possession, eh? You realize we talk about possessions, things that we own, this water bottle that I own as a possession. And yet we use that word to describe a demon entering a person. And maybe it's that language just simply isn't, uh, it's just limited and it's not big enough. But could it be that if we're not careful, the things that we own or the things that we think we possess, they begin to possess us? That they control our actions and our attitudes? Instead of us owning them, they own us. The landowner in this, in this parable doesn't think about giving up his possessions at all. In fact, he looks at turning a profit by paying his workers less. It's reasonable to think that it would have been harvest time. Why else would this landowner keep going back to find workers? That was common practice. You keep getting people so your, your harvest wouldn't die in the field. You got to get it off quick. Drop it off at Royal City Mission. But the landowner acts like me. He says, can't I do what I want with what I own? That is my attitude. But it's also the same attitude that the rich young ruler has when he walks away from Jesus. Because Jesus challenges him. He says to him, do you think you can do what you want with what you think you own? And I guess he could, but he couldn't do it with Jesus. Consider this kind of holding on to attitude, holding on to privilege and power in compared to how we see Jesus' attitude. We see it beautifully in Philippians 2, 6 to 8. Though he was God, he did not think of equality with God as something to cling to. Instead, he gave up his divine privileges. He took the humble position of a slave and was born as a human being. When he appeared in human form, he humbled himself in obedience to God and died a criminal's death on the cross. At first glance, this landowner, at the end of the parable, he justifies himself in a small speech. I'm going to read it to you. He says, friend to the worker, I haven't been unfair. Didn't you agree to work all day for the usual wage? Take your money and go. I wanted to pay this last worker the same as you. Is it against the law for me to do what I want with my money? Should you be jealous because I am kind to others? I only hear myself in this. I often turn the tables on those I've been unfair to. I call them friend and appeal to the law instead of the compassion that I should experience for them. I blame them for accepting the deal I gave them. I say this is mine and I can do what I want with it. And who are you to challenge me? Get back in line. Or better yet, get out of here. You're fired. And in the end, all I do is justify my own actions. And when viewed from that angle, none of this looks, acts, smells like Jesus. Jesus is the image of the invisible God. Let me read the landowner's response again, but let me do it with some attitude, and you'll see how it sounds differently. He answered one of them, friend, I haven't been unfair. Didn't you agree to work all day for the usual wage? Take your money and go. 
I wanted to pay this last worker the same as you. Is it against the law for me to do what I want with my money? Should you be jealous because I am kind? When read like this, it's dripping with my own attitude, trying to justify my own actions. And I am deeply disturbed by this. I'm challenged to change so many areas of my life, my finances, and my thoughts, and my attitudes. And yet, even as I'm disturbed, I'm thankful that God is willing to disturb me. I hope that you're willing to be disturbed. Here's why it is good for us to relook at this parable from another view, and maybe lots of parables. If we believe that the landowner is God, and God only gives his workers enough pay to barely survive, then we can be okay with that kind of practice in our own businesses, in our own communities. And while this is about money, I think this flows into other areas of our life. And if we see the landowner of God and how he treats the person who questions the fairness, we too can cast out people that question our authority or ostracize them or keep them away. I think it's important that we, we catch this connecting teaching between the rich young ruler and the landowner. James P. Danaher said, as long as we abide and identify with the world and the identity we created to be in the world, we will always operate in its interests rather than the interests of God and his kingdom. And my prayer is that that would not be my attitude. And I, that's my prayer for you too, even though it's hard. Let me end with Jesus' words here. But many who are greatest now will be least important then and those who seem least important now will be the greatest then.